I love that you pointed out that New England spot with what New England has potentially there and the fact that you could get a Bill Belichick defense against the Sam Darnold. Uh, I know how that goes. I've seen that. I've seen that a bunch. <laughs> and it's yeah. not good for Sam Darnold. Ghosts. <laughs> everybody, welcome to Props and Hops, a betting and beer podcast powered by Dimers.com and part of Blue Wire Hustle. I'm Matt Landis, and this week, I'm thrilled to welcome back the whale capper, Drew Dinsick. Drew's an NFL and NBA handicapper for NBC Sports Edge, where he also co-hosts the Bet the Edge podcast, and Drew's also the co-host of another podcast, The Deep Dive. Listeners may recall that Drew joined Props and Hops for an NFL Draft Deep Dive back in April. That was episode 41 in the archives. But in this conversation, the focus shifts to the NFL schedule thanks to Drew's renowned 2021 NFL Situational Schedule Matrix. You may recall I had a preliminary schedule breakdown with Drew's partner on the Deep Dive, Andy Molitor. That was episode 44 in the archives. And Andy alluded to Drew's matrix in that conversation. So it's pretty cool now that we have it to bring the whale capper himself back on the show to take that schedule breakdown to the next level. As a caveat, while this is an awesome tool and a great visual, I'll drop a link in the show notes so you can check it out, it's not a betting guide in and of itself. It is a useful resource to help inform our wagering decisions over the arc of the season, so Drew and I get into how to best use the matrix as he intended. And of course, we go beyond the NFL because Drew is a man of many talents, so we touch on the NBA Finals with Game 6 coming up tonight for those listening on the day of this episode's release. And with the opening ceremony coming up in Tokyo in just a few days, we also get some of the best Olympics betting analysis you'll hear anywhere, courtesy of Drew, including over-under gold medal wagers for five countries. And to pair with your viewing experience after locking in some bets we discuss, we weave in the other pillar of the show, The Hops, discussing the breweries that have impressed us the most this summer. One shameless plug if you'd like some more NFL insight as you prepare for the season, I had the honor of joining the sports cheetah Preston Johnson in studio last Friday for his show Last Word Cheetah, and we got into some NFL betting angles including teasers and props, as well as some specific bets when it comes to the regular season win total and offensive rookie of the year markets. I also had the chance to share a fantastic IPA on the air with Preston's producer, Quan, and we also talked some Natty Light with a caller on the show, so we covered the full spectrum as far as the beer is concerned. And with the sports betting content landscape being so cluttered, I love what Preston's doing, taking a unique, refreshing approach to things, interacting a lot with his callers, and being able to relate to bettors on any level, but also providing the kind of valuable insight from a pro better that you'll be hard-pressed to find anywhere else. So it was an honor to be part of Last Word Cheetah in my own small way, and you can watch the episode on YouTube. I've dropped a link in the show notes. One more housekeeping note before we cut to the conversation with Drew. For free picks driven by analytics and thousands of simulations, check out the cutting-edge quick picks section at dimers.com. You can find a link in the show notes. Go ahead and see where you want to get down on the Dimerspot's biggest edges across all the biggest sports. And now, without further ado, enjoy my conversation with the whale capper, Drew Dinsick. Drew Dinsick, welcome back to Props and Hops. Thanks for hopping back on. 
Let's do a deep dive on the NFL schedule matrix, talk some Olympics coming up. NBA is pretty much over, but also a game six to touch on maybe briefly. Uh, yeah, a lot to get to. Thanks so much for reconnecting. Oh, of course. It's always great to talk to a fellow fellow like-minded individuals who are using their month of July instead of sitting around on a beach uh, or you know doing something unproductive. They're getting their they're buckling down and preparing for the NFL season. I think that's the time best spent uh, this time of year. So I can't wait to hear some of your thoughts. Uh, always get great feedback from folks uh, who like the schedule matrix and kind of evaluate it through their own lens. So I'm excited to hear what you have to say about it almost more than I am to talk about it myself, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> for sure well yeah you've probably gotten sick of talking about it but it's so awesome every time when it comes out i do have one thought that i'll, I'll throw your way maybe something that has crossed your mind or possibly another factor to layer into the fold mm -hmm. in future seasons but uh, i figured right before we get into that our last conversation wanted to circle back on it we broke down the nfl draft for listeners that was episode 41 released on april 26th and just Top line, how'd it go for you? And did you get any key takeaways from this draft that you can apply as lessons learned moving forward? The draft was profitable. Uh, it wasn't as smashing as last year. Last year, I hit a 50 to 1 field bet on the top first kicker, which is one that will go down in history. I don't think I'm ever going to get a 50 to 1 cash ever. Uh, you know, yeah, I'm sure you heard uh, the story from um, uh, ESPN's uh, um, Kazarian. Yeah, Doug Kazarian. Uh, Tyson Campbell was the name of the guy. That's right. I was trying to look it up, make sure I had the guy right. Mm -hmm. Tyson Campbell, first safety story. Like that. That's the kind of stuff that you that only comes around once in a lifetime. I feel like. And for me, last year it was first kicker field at fifty to one. Uh, so it was it was going to be a little bit lesser of a uh, of a winning weekend, regardless. Um, but and and I, it was a great experience. You know, I think I, I, I learned some valuable lessons, which were mostly just um, in the kind of big focus markets like the third overall pick quarterback stuff like all along like you should have just been taking the prices because no one knew and you know the market having like some guy implied one way or the other at any point during that whole process was pretty um was pretty unreliable information until like day of you saw that thing sharpen up um so you know taking some prices on some markets like that or staying away from those markets and using your bankroll to hit the softer stuff the stuff that you have you know that's that you have 95 percent that is lined 80 percent we talked about that on the podcast like that i don't think there were any of those that were real high probability that were even close to be honest so um that was a lot of fun uh in terms of kind of doing the accounting on the day after because it's, it's a it's a quick turnaround it's not like you're laying it's not like you're laying and again, I would not do that for this season, but it's not like you're laying 400 for the Chiefs to win the AFC West or something. And you got to sit there and wait, you know, five months for it to, to kind of get into your, you know, get back out of your uh, out of your betting queue. So um, it was fun. And, uh, and and I guess from a football handicapping standpoint, my major takeaway was just the, the AFC continues to consolidate quarterback strength in a way that I did not see coming at all. Like... Other than Fields, you know, I mean, I guess Lance too, but Fields and Lance go to the NFC, but uh, Lawrence now AFC, Wilson now AFC, Matt Jones now AFC. Um, you know, you're really starting to consolidate now a number of drafts in a row where the quarterbacks that are high probability hits or have already hit like the Mahomes, the Josh Allens of the world are all in the AFC for whatever reason. And so the imbalance of power between the conferences over the next five years is going to be pretty stark, I think. 
Yeah, that's a really good angle. And I hadn't heard that yet. But I even think just back to last year, again, being a Chargers fan, I've been over the moon about Justin Herbert's rookie season. But then Tua could be primed for a step forward. Joe Burrow, if he's fully healthy, the Bengals could take a big leap forward this year. So it's going to be pretty cutthroat mm-hmm. in the AFC for years to come. But go maybe back some advantages years. to be found, AFC versus NFC futures down the road. Sure. But if you go back three years, Baker Mayfield hit, Josh Allen hit, Lamar Jackson hit. All of those three teams, top of your AFC board right now after the after the Chiefs. So, uh, I mean, I guess Watson could get traded to the NFC, and then it starts to balance a little bit. But there's still like the disparity between the conferences, especially among young, true guys that have hit from a quarterback standpoint, is pretty uh, pretty stark. Yeah, yeah, I like the point that you made as well about the open-ended markets. Just kind of trusting that nobody really knows anything. And if you're taking the best price available versus trying to outsmart the market, that's probably the preferred path just to look at the numbers. And I guess my key takeaway would be on the flip side of that for the more binary bets, yes, no's, over, unders, just find your trusted sources and get in play early. A prop that uh, I think was the poster child for that this past draft was offensive players drafted in the first round, opened at 17, closed 18 and a half, juiced to the over, and of course, it landed on 18. A, a key reason for that landing on 18 and probably not getting up to at least 19 would be the Ravens trading with the Chiefs and getting that Kansas City first round pick. We talked about that when it was breaking news as we recorded the draft podcast. You noted concern at the time. The Chiefs were most likely going to go offense. And lo and behold, Baltimore goes edge rusher with a mm-hmm. 31st pick. So when you can find those trusted sources and get in play early, we talk about closing line value pretty regularly. But in the draft, it's such a beautiful way to turn either a loss into a push or maybe a push to a win. Better yet, a loss to a win with a prop like this where you can get a number on the right side of you know where it lands at 18. So those are the most satisfying bets to win, probably the most frustrating to lose when it seemed like this was just a sure thing to go over as one offensive player after another got taken early before a late run on defense. So yeah, if you can, again, isolate the experts you trust and get in play early, when it's these binary bets that information really can move the needle, the sooner you can get down, the better off you're probably going to be. Uh, that is very, very well said. Awesome. Well, I, I love doing the draft with you this year. Hopefully we can do it again next year, maybe in about eight or nine months. We'll reconnect on that front. But for now, the bulk of this conversation, your NFL situational schedule matrix And before we dig in too much to this year's uh, substance behind the matrix, I'm curious as to when you first created it and how you started to wrap your mind around which factors to include, because it's really robust. It's an awesome visual tool. I mean, it's a grow. It's a it's a living uh, process. I don't think it's finished. I don't think that I've figured it all out and then I'm not going to continue to add things into the future as stuff becomes obviously important. I'm definitely learning this year. Um, that there are ways to kind of tweak the visual presentation of it on a team-by-team basis, um, marrying it with some look-ahead lines here for our season previews uh, in a way that, you know, you can really kind of dial in on a, se- a team's, um, you know, schedule from t- 1 to 18 and, like, look for the the the, the disadvantage clusters, the advantage clusters. Um, when I first started doing it, I was really just trying to make sure that I wasn't losing track of it over the course of the season, right? Like th- I knew for sure that I wanted to know when a team was on back-to-back road, win- road 
games because especially early in the season because i had some data that i was consistently seeing teams underperforming in that spot and i was like i don't want to lose track of this so i just wanted some convenient way to have all of that tracked uh and then putting it in sort of a visual matrix i felt like was a fair compromise for like kind of sharing it with folks and also not giving away all of the all of the goods you know um and I also like there was obviously I had other motives as well. Like I wanted people to kind of reply and say like, well, that's stupid. That's built into the line or, well, why did you forget about that? Or you missed this. Right. And getting feedback from the public on that sort of stuff has been very valuable and continuing to help it evolve and become a more useful tool. Um, and you know, it's, it's, a it's now a, it's a, it's a, absolute principle part of my process in terms of thinking about market entry for futures um i would not look at i would not make a futures play without detailed evaluation of the sequencing of their games uh to try to end their and the other the other teams in those markets in order to try to evaluate like okay the the high likelihood is team x at the top of the board is going to have very very soft landing Four and oh, three and one, something like that. You know exactly what happens when you have um, like a, a a reasonable favorite minus one twenty five ish to win their division. They go out four and oh, like that becomes a big number real quick. And so, if you are a little bit ahead of the market on that team, you got a better preseason because you know it's already it's going to move in your favor quickly. Right. And then the uh, the exact opposite is true where you're like, OK, I am higher on this team that's expected to finish third or fourth in their division than the market. Um, but the guys that are expected to finish first start soft. My guys start a little bit rough. So why bet three to one now if in October or November I can get eight to one? <laughs> right. And so the market entry timing sort of thinking through this and just identifying where are the hard parts, where are the easy parts, you know, who's. Who are you up against in your division and where are their hard parts and easy parts? And, and how is that going to likely affect the, the, you know, the dynamic marketplace of, you know, division odds, things like that. That's hugely um, important part of my process now. And I'd say I use it for about 80% of that and about 20% just to help remind me, um, you know, Hey, this is a, this is a spot you don't want to forget about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a lot of good stuff there. I want to circle back on a few things you touched on. Also, maybe get into a few of the specific extreme scenarios where we could uncover value with some proper timing in season. But before getting into that, one of the factors that I think has probably been on this matrix from the get-go, at least as far back as I can recall seeing it every year, would be the clock icon symbolizing <laughs> a West Coast team playing at 10 a.m. Pacific time. And uh, of course, that is increasingly, if not entirely, priced into the line in 2021. But there's another potential use case for that clock icon I wanted to run by you. And that would be an East Coast team playing a West Coast team in prime time. And for the West Coast team, there's a body clock advantage, whether they're home or away. If you think about it, late fourth quarter in a primetime game, we're usually pushing about midnight Eastern. So this year, an example could be something like Steelers at the Chargers in week 11. Have you given any thought to a factor like this or, or maybe including it in subsequent seasons? I agree with your sentiment that that is a factor and that that has meaningful um, meaningful uh, impact on player performance. Uh, and the market, I don't think, is currently pricing it correctly. Uh, it just happens to be really, really rare. Um, 
I don't know that there's a ton of them this year. And um, this isn't to say this is like a golden angle that I wanted to keep secret necessarily. <laughs> but uh, uh, I do think those are bet, bet on spots personally. Um, and I probably will bet on those teams, <laughs> but, uh, you know, calling huge attention to it, making sure it's, uh, you know, kind of in the front of people's minds, uh, I don't think is, uh, I don't think, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't have, it's, a it's small sample size at this point too. So I'm a little hesitant to really kind of go hard to the window and say, no guys pay attention. This is something important, uh, with such a small sample size. Um, but I, if you are if you are adding to this yourself, if you are keeping you know keeping your own uh, you know schedule matrix, and you have included that, I think you are a step ahead of the game. Got it. Okay, a little uh, reading the tea leaves required for some listeners. There, part of it not wanting to divulge everything like you mentioned earlier. Another good point. It is pretty rare, a slightly smaller sample size, but something to keep pinned in the back of our minds as the season approaches. So uh, yeah, appreciate your thought there. And I also just wanted to touch on one more like high level question here. You must put in a lot of work to make this what it is between the research and then actually putting the visual together. When did you start to realize how popular it was from the get go? The first time you did this visualization was the feedback just pretty much immediate or, or was there a certain moment when you were like, Hey, there's something to this. I think this could be a pretty cool thing to do every year and get a pretty good response from a big following. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was, I think the first year I did it, it was probably the most popular thing I tweeted all year. And I was like, oh, wow, people really do really love this. And so that's kind of a no brainer to keep doing it. Um, and at this point, yeah, I don't, I don't think I'll have a more engaged tweet all year than when I tweet this out in the middle of freaking July. People, people love, love, love the NFL. They love it. And it drives all the betting information cycle, everything. Like there are people who probably haven't played a bet since the Super Bowl. And they are just, they are ready to go for the 2020, you know, 2021 season. And, um, you know, I think, again, it's, it's a valuable tool in terms of my process. But, it, you know, it's the same, same sort of thing as like, you know, the Phil Steele magazine for, you know, college football handicapping and stuff. Like you got, you know, people will go, you know, there's no, there's nothing in that magazine probably that is going to help you beat the market a robust market like college football all right and there's lots of silly stuff in there too right but it is still hugely important part of a process for a lot of the college guys to go pick up that magazine and look at you know the, the returning starter numbers the schedule rankings things like that that are kind of in there uh which really kind of hugely guide some of the process oriented act yeah activities that you do in the off season um so i i think I, it was pretty obvious right away that people were into this and that I was, you know, something that I would always kind of do every summer as sort of the kickoff to the, my NFL handicap. Yeah. I think you've got the best of both worlds working in your favor where the NFL is King, like you said, and then visuals can be so powerful on social media when done. Right. I remember the week after we did our NFL draft breakdown, I did a, a California craft beer draft and had a designer put together some pretty cool visuals for that. And even though it didn't get, you know, the downloads of talking to somebody like you or Sports Cheetah, the amount of engagement on Twitter, just throwing that visual up there was really surprising. So when you can combine the right format that the audience wants to receive on a certain platform with a topic like the NFL at the level that you can do it, that's I think that's just really hitting the sweet spot. And you also touched on something at the end there that I think is important to reiterate um, context around the grid. Um, 
when you and Andy rolled it out on the deep dive recently. I think you both did a good job of saying this is not a cheat sheet. This is not, you know, Biff's book and Back to the Future 2 that's giving you all the answers ahead of time. But it is at the same time a really useful tool. So um, if you could go a little bit more in depth on the use case for the grid, how do you personally make sure that you're mindful of it without maybe overplaying your hand or reading too much into something that we really don't have any way of knowing, like you said, at this stage in July. Yeah, no, I, and yeah, it, it's, there are people who I know who probably snicker when they see this, you know, like the, the kind of the professional ranks, you know, they're like, oh, come on, you know, yeah, team's coming off a buy, like no, no, duh, everybody knows that, you know, and I think, you know, that sort of stuff, yeah, yeah, that sort of stuff is, is not going to give you an advantage at all in any way, in any betting market, in the NFL, in 2021, it's not, but identifying, hey, did you know Green Bay pay, plays three guy, three teams in a row at a rest disadvantage, two of them coming off a buy in a row, like that sort of stuff is a little hidden, I think, <laughs> and, and knowing that, you know, going into, you know, a season projection on a given team, uh, and or a futures market. Like if you were high on Green Bay and you're like, man, I know Aaron Rodgers is coming back. The market selling seems unsure. And I think the Green Bay Packers, because the uncertainty around Aaron, Mar Aaron Rodgers, they're they're cheap right now. If you want to bet them in the futures, uh, do, you know, that that sentiment might be cooled real quickly when you look at their schedule and how difficult it is, number one, and how situationally disadvantaged it is, number two. They're probably finishing as third or fourth in terms of division champions if they win the North. Uh, and so, yeah, you may get a tiny edge price-wise on a team like the Packers, but um, the likelihood that that price is going to be there midseason, I think is still pretty good. <laughs> and so there's really no rush. Any of those other teams in the NFC North outside the Lions could – surprise and win a couple games early get a little bit of market momentum and at that point you may get even better numbers on the packers with aaron Rodgers as a known quantity back in you know back in the uh, uh in the mix so it's uh you know that this is sort of the the kind of the best use of this now looking you know looking at it from a you know well what do i do with this standpoint um and I am sure there are people that don't listen to the podcast i'm sure there are people that pick this up and they will bet all the advantage spots and fade all the disadvantage spots in the blind and i don't know what else to tell those people but <laughs> that that's the way that the market works sometimes and if you know i i'm just hopeful that people kind of get it through their heads at this point like no this is not a cheat sheet no do not bet this in the blind like all, a lot of this is accounted for is captured and honestly to the point now where we kind of have some influence in the market in general like if you don't know that it was if, if it was not captured before, we are forcing it in now because we are betting into, you know, where we think their you know, stuff is mispriced. So, um, you know, if somebody wakes up on a Sunday morning and they look at the sheet and they're like, oh, this team has extra rest off a buy. I'm going to bet them because of that. Like, I don't know what else to do to help those people. Yeah, fair enough. I wanted to circle back on what you said about the Packers, because this could be a way, to your point, not just trying to time maybe market entry for a futures play, but also just to reshape the approach. I, I know that some books have the Packers up at plus three week one with a total of 50 and a half. And as much as parlays can often shortchange when it comes to the payout, if you're pretty confident Aaron Rodgers is going to be back, then that plus three 
has a lot of value to it. And that 50 and a half might be pretty low as the total, especially with Jameis Winston likely on the other side in week one. So instead of maybe waiting for a spot midseason to time, you know, the Packers to win the division, the conference, the Super Bowl, you could just look at week one and tying in with another point you made earlier. That way you're not just sitting on bankroll for months on end. Uh, at this stage, you know, it's it's less than a couple months out that that bet is going to pay out if and when it cashes. So it can also be useful just to think about um, not just do I like this team? Do I not like this team? But what type of bet do I want to make on them? Is it a future? Is it a single game? Is there a point spread or a total? There are so many ways that this can go. So I appreciate your context there. And at the same time, just acknowledging, you know what, you can give all the context and caveats in the world. And at a certain point, people are going to do what people are going to do. Yeah, no, that's. I, that's where I'm at, <laughs> especially uh, especially when it comes to the NFL. Yeah, well, there are a few extreme scenarios that I think we can dig into a little bit. Again, if nothing else, some good food for thought. The Ravens, I'd like to start there because they have a couple interesting swing spots. First off, weeks five through nine, no travel. So they might be a little undervalued entering that stretch. Or they could be overvalued coming out of that stretch, especially considering they've got four out of five games on the road when we look at weeks 10 to 14. Another team we could consider the Patriots. Week nine at the Panthers. The Patriots might be undervalued there. A scenario you mentioned earlier, they're coming off of uh, back-to-back games against teams off their bye. So if the Patriots aren't looking so hot week seven and eight, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are who they are come week nine. And then if we want to continue on with the Panthers, our most recent guest on Props and Hops, T.A. Cleve T.A. had a great note on Twitter when you posted The Matrix talking about Carolina having some pretty good rest edges throughout the course of the season. And even on Thursday night, they drew a road game, but it's against the Texans with a rookie head coach. And it's early. It's going to be week three. So that rookie coach is still going to be learning their ropes. So there are a few teams here where we can look for certain spots over the course of the season. Again, not necessarily to bet Every Ravens game of the year, you know, bet on them to cover the spread when they're at home, weeks five through nine, bet against them weeks 10 to 14. Don't do that right now, but (laughs) consider this over the arc of the season. Uh, What a team shows one week isn't necessarily what that team's going to be week in and week out. Yeah, no, and I think I love that you pointed out that New England spot uh, with what what New England has potentially there and the fact that you could get, uh, you know, your Bill Belichick, a Bill Belichick defense against the Sam Darnold. Uh, I know how that goes. I've seen that. I've seen that a bunch. <laughs> and it's yeah. not good for Sam Darnold. Ghosts. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, those are those are some small ones that are pretty cool. Right now, the look ahead for that game is uh, Pickham uh, in Carolina, which is uh, not so sure about that. Even though I'm, I'm, I in general, I'm cool on New England. So I think a best case scenario, Carolina comes out hot. They take advantage of their rest situations. Um, they surprise some teams. They, they, they're decent favorites to the Jets week one. They can beat Houston and Dallas. Why not? Um, I think uh, a surprise early positive start for this Panthers team could set up a, a really nice sell high by low in that New England game. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll uh, keep my fingers crossed for a good opportunity there. In fact, once we're done recording, I'm going to go look up that week nine spot in the game of the year lines where they're available. Because, yeah, pick them could be pretty enticing. Uh, come game day, especially if the Patriots really are in a spot to to take a big step forward after a rough draw in the weeks immediately preceding that matchup. One other point I wanted to touch on beyond uh, a few teams um, is that this can also be informative beyond teams or ATS bets we're looking to make. I think of my conversation with 
your partner, Andy Molitor, when we were doing a preliminary schedule breakdown in episode 44 of this show. And he talked about Zach Wilson, rookie of the year. Whether or not you like that bet right now, you might not want to bet it at this point because he kind of circled their week three game at Denver. And after that, they've got a pretty good setup to get right. They host the Titans who, yeah, they added Julio, but that defense is still mighty questionable. Then they play the Falcons in London. Then they have a bye. So the Jets might come out of the gate slow and could be set up to, you know, kind of get off to the races after week three. So this is just something to consider, again, beyond teams and ATS bets, futures like rookie of the year where those markets are still offered in season. It can be a very fluid marketplace. You could get a much better number on a guy like Zach Wilson in a few months versus pulling the trigger while we're here in the summer. And that also compresses the window of time that you have to have that bankroll tied up. Great point. That's a really good point. And uh, I, yeah, I don't, I don't have a strong read yet on what this Jets team is going to look like. Uh, if you put all of the pieces together that they got this offseason, combined with who they kept that was kind of potentially underrated considering coaching last year, um, they should be good. Not good like 10 wins, but good like not, you know, like 500 ish. And right now, the, um, uh, the market power number on the Jets is like basement, right? They are the third worst expected team here at a minus four, um, you know, power number uh, relative to average. So the four points um, lower than an average team. Thirtieth uh, best offense expected, twenty fourth best defense expected. Um, that only you know when you have teams kind of in the basement like this that are a little bit uncertain that have relatively high upside if things go right. Uh, that's that's an interesting case to try to identify some alt overs or just to bet on them week by week as we go through the season and when you have spots you like. Yeah, absolutely. And and to that point about having spots you like, I think, again, to, to underscore one thing, considering market timing and all of this, because as bettors, we're not just going head to head with the book, but we're also trying to beat the much larger market and play around us. So with that in mind, are there any other extreme scenarios that we haven't touched on so far that you might care to share or any any bets you're at least considering, but for the time being, you're deliberately waiting on them? Uh, I haven't made very many bets already, actually, surprisingly. I'm usually a little bit more aggressive this time of year, um, but I don't. I think in general, the market numbers are somewhat sharp. Um, and in general, uh, there is a little bit of uncertainty that we're going to get answered by preseason this year that we didn't have last year. So I think uh, I'm, I've been a, a, a more uh, conservative in my preseason plays. Like, I guess great example is like across all of the uh, player markets, um, I usually will you know, hit the board five, six, maybe ten plays by this time of year. Um, and I really only have one. <laughs> I really only have, uh, you know, one of the, you know, awards that I have any kind of meaningful stake on. Um, it's uh, Miles Garrett, Defensive Player of the Year. Hit that number pretty hard. You can still get it uh, at certain legal legal shops. It's uh, are kind of lagging on moving that number in. Um, but uh, um, but yeah, the 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 general. Um, amount of NFL betting I've done this year is, is down. Yeah, fair enough. I think that last year we saw a whole lot of uncertainty. And if that can teach any of us to be a little bit more cautious, I know that uncertainty in a lot of ways breeds opportunity, but if it can also reel in 
any chance of recklessness, then I think that's a prudent takeaway. And one quick follow-up to your Miles Garrett note. I know um, offshore, uh, presumably after you got in on it, some of the prices definitely were affected. But when you mentioned some of the legal books still having some value, is there just a general range for listeners out here who might not have shopped around for that specific uh, bet already? Miles Garrett for Defensive Player of the Year. Is there, let's say, like a price floor at, at which you know you need at least a certain number to get in play? Yeah, I wouldn't bet any lower than four to one. My fare is like around three to one. Cool. Okay. I think good to mo- know. Most of my actions in the seven to one plus six fifty range. Um, but uh, I get there again. Um, you know, for your listeners, and again, you kind of hit a, a nice sweet spot of sort of the the rec plus players. Any kind of future shopping, now it doesn't just have to be awards. Open all your tabs. Every place you have liquidity, open them all and look at all of those prices. And just that exercise alone of looking at the different prices at the different books and thinking about who is betting at those books and why those numbers might be different is a good exercise. If Miles Garrett is really is relatively low at a shop like Bet Online, where you know people like me and here and you know others, obviously a lot of sharp people at Bet Online, not just us. But, you know, people like us are hitting the bejesus out of that number and it's low there and other places where we may not have access to betting odds because they limit us or or jurisdictionally we're just not there and they have better odds on certain players like that's a good kind of learning exercise. And, um, you know, if you are getting the better of the number relative to some of the market making books on a regular basis, you're going to win long term period. Yeah, that reminds me of recently having read The Logic of Sports Betting. I know it's a book that's been out for a couple of years now, but Ed Miller and Matthew David out did a great job laying out a ton of concepts there. Again, kind of targeted perhaps at that rec plus better, if you will. And one of the biggest themes, probably the single biggest theme throughout the book would be spotting the sucker. They open with that line from Rounders. <laughs> they bring it back at the end and a few times throughout. And when I it comes to looking at... That. Oh, I, yeah, I actually, (laughs) I've seen enough parts of it here and there so that I feel like if I saw any snapshot of it, I could identify it. I need to watch the movie in one sitting for the first time. I am long overdue for that. So uh, I've got that on my NFL offseason list. But bringing it in with your point about futures betting and opening all the tabs, one of the best takeaways I got from reading The Logic of Sports Betting was sometimes to look at boards not thinking you're eyeing a certain team or a certain type of bet. Just look for them as pricing, and and that's your bet. So it's kind of flipping the order of, hey, I want to bet the Cowboys. Let me find the best number to say, hey, I'm going to look at the board for the NFL this season, all the futures that all the books I have. Let me find the worst number, and that's what I want to bet. So that kind of framework can go a really long way in having you know a slight profit over time or coming closer to breaking even versus just constantly paying the big as an entertainment tax. Yeah, uh, 100% agree. <laughs> Cool. Well, to tie a bow on the schedule matrix, um, I just want to underscore as much as we can for any listeners here who see it. It's tempting to try to, again, maybe get down on any advantage spots or fade any disadvantage spots. But understanding the proper framework here and, and just having that balanced approach of knowing that for better or worse, we do see some extreme situations on paper. And in reality, there's a lot that's going to happen that we have no way of knowing at this point, and we won't be able to predict. And even with what we think we do know, guess what? There's a ton of variance in there as well. Like when we think we know something, 
if we're operating at between 55 and 60% confidence, that's about as high as it's going to get. So from the standpoint of having some good situational awareness versus reading too much into narratives, how do you kind of keep yourself in check with, you know, just knowing what's going on, but not getting overextended because of a preconceived notion that you may have? It is that that is more of an art than a science. Um, God, man, two years ago, was it? Uh, I was very, very convinced that the um, the back to back road spots early in the season was one of those golden angles that the market was never going to be able to account for enough and went ham on a bunch of home teams week two. And they all lost. <laughs> and then I took a step back and I was like, man, like what in the world is going on? And kind of forcing myself to sort of reevaluate that as a situation, forcing myself to look harder at the market numbers. I kind of figured out, I was like, you know, what happened to home field advantage? <laughs> like it wasn't just those teams that I had kind of circled there. It was like happening everywhere. And it was kind of, you look back a couple of years, you're like, whoa, this has been declining for years. What is happening? And this is again, totally independent of the market. Like just in general, the NFL teams weren't having as much of a home field advantage. And so um, kind of learning the hard way through losing uh, and reevaluating that stuff really kind of forced me to be like, well, no, don't just apply three uh, to the home team. Like it might be a lot less now. And, you know, there, of course, are good reasons as to why it's less. And I think for this year, especially coming off a year where we had no fans, um, that's going to be one of the quicker things that people are going to have to wrap their head around. What, what am I using? Is it one? Is it two? Is it two and a half? You know, what's, what's the right number uh, or even not even number of points? Everybody thinks about home field advantage in terms of points. It is entirely win probability based. And then that trickles into a point. Right. So you could have a pretty meaningful win probability shift and it may move you from three and a half to three versus a win probability shift that might move you from six to four and a half. So in one considering what the what the spread is, what the number is, it might be two and a half, might be three, it might be half (laughs) right a point because it's all really you know just all kind of baked into win probability much more so than it is point spread and and the value of points is so wildly disparate across uh you know the key numbers that you see in the nfl yeah and one step further from that i would say is uh something that you know you can just assume and figure this out in your sleep i'm sure but for some of the listeners who might be new to this um different teams should have different home field advantages. I I think if we just, you know, look at any historical data, Seattle tends to do pretty well with its home field. Um, I think the Patriots for a while have been pretty good. The Vikings, when they pack that new stadium, have been strong. And then, again, welcome to life as a Chargers fan. I mean, if if it's anything above zero, it should be a pretty small number, especially with the new stadium right by LAX. I mean, guess what? If if you're playing a, a big team from the Midwest or the East Coast later in the year, guess where everybody wants to take their big trip? They probably want to go to Vegas and they probably want to see the Chargers in LA. So I I would guess that the Raiders and Chargers this season should probably have a much lower baseline home field advantage than those teams like, say, the Seahawks, Patriots, or Vikings. Yeah, no, that's that's, that's very fair. And um, there's also an element of, I I think there's an element of the better organizations and the better general managers know how to build a team that takes advantage of their, whatever their home field is like, Oh, you're 
uh, you're on the, the uh, Bill Polian and the you know the Colts kind of a situation. Like, oh, well, we're going to play a lot of our games indoors. Like, we're going to build our team in a way that we have speed on the turf, and we're going to be able to you know beat you downfield. Blah blah blah. Like, you know that that sort of that is another element that I think is. Um, uh, is important to capture because some teams, the way they're constructed, Falcons back in the day with Shanahan and you know Matt Ryan and all that speed on that turf, they were un uncoverable, <laughs> and and then you'd get, throw them outside and uh, you know in in, in um, what was the best example? Falcons going to the Bears maybe early in the season on that super long grass, and everybody all of a sudden looks like they're running in mud. And it's like, oh, well, the home field advantage for the Bears just neutralized the key strength for that Falcons team. Uh, and the Bears were like eight-point dogs. I think they lost by one or two or something. But, um, you know, that those sort of things, I think, are uh, sort of hidden in the in the noise around home field advantage that I like to think through uh, before firing away on anything that's angled in that space. Yeah. Well, I love that level of nuance and that's where a lot of the real edges can be found that you're not going to get everywhere. So I appreciate you sharing that with, with me and the listeners of this show. And it's clear why you are where you are when it comes to handicapping the NFL and being so highly respected there. But I also know that you do other sports and we can maybe, as we start to wrap things up, do quick hitters on the NBA finals and the Olympics and starting with NBA finals game six, it's coming the night that this podcast releases. So early listeners might have a chance to get in play if you see any edges. Although I think at this stage, it's game six of a, you know, of a very prominent series in a major market. Bucks minus five, total around 222. It, it's pretty much hammered into place at this point, I would assume. But any, any thoughts at all on betting for NBA Finals game six? I agree with you that it is hammered into place. I think that um, the biggest, you know, the biggest, uh, th- there was not a huge margin of, of uh of difference between these two teams from a strength standpoint um but we are at the business end of the series where all of the uh, adjustments have been exhausted for phoenix and you know milwaukee is just they're playing a couple of aspects of their game at an absolutely perfect level and so if you're going to tell me they're ought to be five point favorites at home in a closeout game i'm not going to balk they've been better at home in general over the course of these playoffs by a huge margin um and uh the suns don't have that kind of LeBron-esque player who can, you know, wrestle control of a series when you're down two, three on the road. So um, I I don't see a ton of edge here. I know that there are people who are making a case for under for various reasons, but uh, I'm probably going to steer clear of that that market and that game in general and, uh, you know, look forward to the next couple of sports as we move past the NBA and into, uh, you know, more, more, uh, uh, more uncertain markets with less information having contributed to a very sharp price. <laughs> For sure. I think one thing working in the Bucks' favor to piggyback on your point about the Suns lacking that superstar presence. Uh, I mean, when Giannis, especially once Giannis went down with his knee injury in the previous round, it seemed like, okay, there are what none of the top eight or 10 players left standing. And his, his ability to really contribute in this series is obviously such a key factor so you know when we look back on this that might just be a case of attrition and the one team that had the superstar that even though he's not 100 percent, he's damn near it and he's just playing lights out right now that's often as we get deeper into a series to your point the adjustments can get made but there's only so much adjusting you can do when there's just such a supernatural talent like that and, and eventually that tends to rise to the top yeah no I, that's i think that's exactly where we are 
Cool. Well, we can also do a quick hitter on the Olympics with the opening ceremony coming, what, about a year later than expected, but it's coming up on Friday, three days from the release of this episode. And I know on your spot on VEASAN last week, you talked about liking South Korea over 10 and a half gold medals. And now that number, I'm seeing it shifting quite a bit um, to various price points in the 11 and a half range. Some it's a flat, you know, I guess in this market, if flat would be minus 115, but there are some even money or even a bit of plus money out there. So at 11 and a half with reduced fig or possibly a plus payout, do you still see any value there? Or is there anywhere else that you'd look on the Olympics betting boards? There's a lot. <laughs> There's a lot. It's This is a market that is... Um, way more uncertain than the NFL wins totals. <laughs> there are, there are, you, you know, for sure, there are 18 games, uh, you know, 18, excuse me, 18, 18 weeks, 17 games in the NFL. Um, you know what the schedule is, you know what the strength, you know, relative strength between teams is. There's a lots of certainty into coming up with a fair number. The Olympics have, they will, we will be awarding, let me pull up the right number here, 339 gold medals across 40-something sports. Now, to say that there are sharp markets on all of those 339 medals is insane. There are some that are completely, complete and total unknowns. Um, there are others that are sharp. So you have this wild like difference, like uh, you know, synchronized swimming. You have two Russian gold medals, period. Uh, archery, you're going to have a bunch of Korean gold medals. Diving, bunch of Chinese gold medals. That like there are some things that are very, very uh, high probability, and then there are others where the favorite to win a gold in some random uh, fighting market or fencing market or even uh, you know swimming uh, market, the favorite might be plus two fifty, <laughs> right? And so uh, coming up with a fair price on Olympic gold medals is super, super hard. And um, you've seen some pretty aggressive market movement coming off of these openers. Um, Japan, uh, United States, the big ones like United States, Japan, Russia, South Korea, Australia, uh, in terms of market movement, I think are worth covering. Uh, the United States opened 46 and a half. Their swimming trials were underwhelming. Um, and the, I don't know what other sports people think we are going to underwhelm on, but the 46 and a half has just been bet getting bet to the under, like somebody knows what the final medal total is going to be <laughs> like, they know it. And I don't know that that's necessarily fair at this point. I'm looking at that. Like it seems too hard. There are some places at legal shops, you can get over 43 and a half now for United States. And I'm going to do a little bit more kind of breakdown at our metal uh, count here to see if I can come up with what our true fare ought to be. But we're for sure still going to win 10 in swimming. We're still going to get, you know, 12 to 15 in track and field. We'll get five plus in gymnastics. Um, there are a number of sports where we are still going to get our typical or close to our typical haul. Uh, and there are more medals being awarded this year than a normal year. So the idea that we can still get into that mid 40s range, I think is worth exploring. Um, and I'm starting to kind of get a little bit of a sense that uh, I need to get back in on this United States market to the over considering how far it's been steamed. Uh, Japan, I still feel pretty strongly about an under. Um, the, right now, in order to get, you know, Japan's total is 27 and a half, 26 and a half, depending on where you look. The under opened up at a flat minus 110 for 27 and a half, and it's gotten bet down pretty aggressively. It's like in the minus 170 range now. 
and that that it was correct direction out directionally that was the correct move um i would still bet under 26 and a half because for japan to get to 27 everything has to go right everything has to break their way they need a full like 11 gold medals in judo uh they need to get all of their kind of random ones like a random one in cycling a random one in uh, badminton they need to win baseball gold they need to win golf gold they need to win women's tennis gold like it all has to break their way in order to get to that 27 total uh so i still like a, a japan under uh, I would play under 26 and a half if you can get a, like a closer to an even uh, even odds bet on that. Um, and then uh, the ones that I think are worth pointing out overs, uh, surely uh, Russia was lined incorrectly at the start. Um, I think a lot of what informs the medals markets is just how did you do last time out? And in Rio, Russia did poorly. But a reason the reason Russia did poorly is because a lot of their athletes were suspended for drug violations on the back of what they did in Sochi. And because of that, they they just they didn't weren't anywhere close to their expected win total in Rio. And now all those athletes are back and, you know, they've been in Russia with the pandemic going on where you haven't had a ton of, off, you know, the same amount of offseason drug testing. So I'm expecting the Russians to be surprisingly awesome. And, you know, a total like 19 and a half even still, I think, is bettable to the over. Um, my fare on Russia is 24. So I would bet anything in the teens to the over for the Russian Federation or Russian Olympic, whatever they're called, ROC. Uh, and then um, the uh, the Australians, I think, are due for a, a pretty spectacular women's swim meet, as well as the uh, the women's um, uh, flat water kayak and, and a couple of golds coming out of their uh, biking, uh, you know, random ones on a, a number of other sports. I think Australia gets over 12 and a half pretty comfortably. Uh, and then... Um, South Korea, you mentioned uh, what I was talking about with Gil. That was 10 and a half. I thought that was pretty disrespectful. I have South Korea winning four archery medals and um, a number of Taekwondo medals on top of, uh, you know, a, a handful of random ones here or there and the likes of, uh, um, you know, the, the, the alternate sports. And, uh, and the angle that I especially love about the South Korea golds that people aren't really accounting for beyond just the fact that this is pretty close to a home field, at least in terms of you're not traveling huge amounts of distance. You're not out of your time zone. You're really, you're not out of your uh, hemisphere. Like a lot of these other athletes, um, your pandemic was not especially bad in, in Korea. You didn't really, you know, your training wasn't impacted uh, in, in general broadly. Um, and, if you win gold for your country, you are exempt from uh, military service. And so there is a, that little added incentive beyond just winning a gold medal for the sake of achievement. You can actually, especially you know, if you're a pro athlete, if you're a women's golfer, if you're a men's golfer, if you're, you know, if you're does not it does not matter what professional sport you in, you intend to compete on. Um, you have that added motivational bump of if you win gold for your country, you are exempt from military service, which I think is going to drive a, a lot of performance or just kind of focused preparation for this event more so than other guys like, you know, the like some of the men's golfers are going to be up against some really good men's golfers who were just focused on winning a major in the UK. And now they got to pivot on the fly and fly to Tokyo and get ready for the Olympics. And they, what do they care? Like I'm, I'm making money professionally, like sure. I'll win gold for my country. I guess this is cool. But the South Koreans, they have been taking off a bunch of events and focused preparation for this in the hopes to get a men's gold 
medal in in golf and uh, and get out of uh, get out of the middle military service for South Korea. So uh, I think that's a fun angle that helps support a South Korea over beyond just the fact that my counting of their medals gets us into the uh, into the low teens. I love that angle with South Korea. And I think if the late great Dave Malinsky were still around and if he even researched the Olympics, he would he would also love to uncover something like that, getting into not just handicapping everything on the field, but the mindset that can go into all this. And when it comes to the Olympics, I think that could be especially valid because on one hand, it could be like, well, hey, it is the Olympics. Everybody's been working their whole life for this. So whether you're exempt from military service or not, wherever you come from, this is, you know, this is the holy grail. But if we talk about, you mentioned golf, like guess what? Most most pro golfers would probably rather win a major than Olympic gold in soccer. You know, this is going to be really cool, but it's not World Cup status or even the Euros we just finished were so entertaining. So there are certain areas where, yeah, it's the Olympics. But if there's that extra one or two percent bump in terms of motivation, that can go a really long way. So that kind of subtle factor I don't know if anybody's going to hear this anywhere else. I mean, I, I was at the Olympics working with NBC in 2008 in Beijing covering Usain Bolt's crazy run and track and field. And usually in my circles, um, I, I tend to know a little more about the Olympics than most people I come across. But that breakdown you just gave was absolutely mind blowing. So <clears> thank <throat> you for being so generous there with your insight. Yeah. What, what, yeah, are, some of, what's, what are some of the there. sports? Uh, what are some of the sports you have real strong opinions on? Well, I think just by virtue of having been in, in the track and field unit um, almost 24 hours a day in, in 08, that was my experience. I wasn't betting yet, and I focused most of my you know betting arc in the NFL. So unfortunately, I don't think I can in good conscience recommend a certain bet in a sport. Um, I had a good friend, a high school teammate, won a bronze medal, I believe it was in baseball uh, in Beijing, and we got to hang out and got some pretty good intel there. But then baseball kind of went away, and that's just such a – I don't know, such a finicky beast when it comes to what kind of effort is going to go into it. So, um, yeah, it's it's nothing along the lines of of the insight that you just shared across what we've got U.S., Japan, Russia, Australia, South Korea. I don't know how many sports you just dropped that that was just exceptional. Um, I guess I, a key question I have for track and field, maybe you have some just contextual opinion here. Um, the Great Britain won a bunch of golds last couple cycles on the back of a couple standout athletes who have aged out now. Uh, do you have thoughts on, you know, like Mo Farah no longer, you know, in the running first gold medals. Um, you know, do you think that that, you know, some of the, you know, the, the, um, the turnover here helps any particular country? Like who would you expect to really be uh, especially competitive in some of the distance running events? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, aside from not wanting to overweight, to your point, a lot of the handicapping baseline goes back to the previous Olympic cycle. So like Russia getting knocked for some, you know, issues they had in Rio, probably not going to apply so much here. On the flip side, we probably don't want to give Great Britain too much credit for their past when a lot of what got them there isn't going to be in play in Tokyo. I would say more than a thought favoring any specific athlete or country, given the context around Great Britain situation. Um, with track and field, one thing that stood out to me that I, I kind of wish I, I was betting and had access at the time in 08, um, when we see such a standout performer, like again, I, I watched Usain Bolt, so I'll go back to him. Sure. He was pretty much jogging every heat. And he, he was even jogging a roughly half of the 100 meter final in Beijing. And 
his times were still amazing, but you knew there was a lot of meat left on that bone. So if, if there is the ability to get anything, um, and, and I would need to look at this, but if they do anything along the lines of a certain time where you can go over under, everybody around him was going all out and he was still just beating them by a mile on cruise control. So mm-hmm. keeping a close eye on um, you know, any of the, the very standout performers, they might not have to exert nearly as much effort as a lot of their competitors to advance through the heats. And if we're looking at, hey, this guy's been running, a, you know, this guy's been running a 9.8 in, in his heats, that doesn't mean that his peak is a 9.8. It's probably, you know, a, a good bit lower than that. So there can be edges to be found just by saying who's exerting how much effort to get to the point where it's, you know, it's a finals match in whatever sport that most of the world's going to be watching. Some people just to get there are running on fumes and others are kind of just hitting the peak of their performance capabilities. Yeah. Okay. That's uh, that makes sense to me. Totally, totally, totally. I, I'm excited for the week. I always, I always, uh, try to protect my stack after doing, I try, you know, I, I have a lot of swimming insight. I put that into the week one and then I try to, I bet a little bit more cautiously week two during the athletics, but I'm going to use some of those nuggets to, to help sharpen up my handicap there. Cool. I'll do some shopping around after we finish this up because, uh, yeah, I, I've just been, um, I don't know, maybe it's inspired by my recent conversation with Suma or following uh, <laughs> Sports Cheetah's new show. His college football breakdowns have been great. I've just been almost, you know, All laser football. focused on football. <laughs> and it's like, hey, the Olympics are hey, starting in a few days. We might as well take uh, a look. No, don't uh, don't don't uh, spread yourself in. Stick to what, uh, you know, so if, you, if you're already in a groove for a sport, uh, you'll re- you'll realize some. Uh, some gains pretty quickly early in the season. If you, you know, that, that, you know, the first couple of weeks when, you know, p- people are still figuring out where their priors are wrong. If you are sharper than them, you can absolutely make hay. Last year it was like that with the Packers, a couple other teams, you know, going against the Vikings, going uh, betting on Tennessee. Like, you know, there were a handful of, uh, uh, of teams where if you had a, a really sharp prior, heading into the season uh it took about four weeks before the market caught up and uh that's where you really want to be making your hay get yourself a nice little lead yeah and i'd say on the on the flip side we've got i know uh that the process is a really big podcast and rufus peabody was just preposterously high on the jets it seemed for the entire season and being able to identify where you might be missing something can also be really valuable. And I know he puts into in the work to plug those holes, but yeah, you might be onto something that people haven't figured out yet. Or if you're just knocking your head against the wall week in and week out, it might be time to pump the brakes and, and see where we can maybe fix some errors in the process. But yeah, when you talk about last year, you know, figuring out early on certain teams to bet on or against, I also remember a prop that was, um, my, my favorite part of the NFL season was betting shortest touchdown under one and a half yards in so many games with high totals. We saw pretty much record scoring right out of the gate. Yep. And I think a lot of that was because road teams could communicate pretty much as well as the home team on key downs and where they're, when they're deep in the red zone. And totals, eventually, that's going to become an efficient market. And that can trickle down to half and quarter totals and team totals. But when we get as far down the menu as something like a shortest touchdown prop, that wasn't I think properly priced in at certain books bookmaker would be there could be a game with a total of 54 and bookmaker is probably going to have that under one and a half yards at minus 180. That's probably the right number. A lot of books were closer to minus 130, minus 140. Wow. And in those cases, it opens up an arbitrage opportunity. But I think the better bet is to put all your eggs in the basket of again, tying back to the logic of sports betting, spotting the sucker, 
don't worry about paying the VIG on the correct line of bookmaker. Just go in on the wrong line. And yeah, it's not always going to hit, but more often than not, it's going to. And if that's a profitable bet over the course of the season, you're going to see those returns in your bankroll. So just one more kind of nugget to help hopefully get people thinking along the right lines as we approach preseason in just a few weeks and then the regular season right after that. Yep. Sounds good, man. And uh, I, I guess, are you expecting any reversion to the mean on that with the uh, crowds back? I would expect some. I'm going to go into it a little bit easier this year, but at the same time, if something's priced 40 or 50 cents off, then okay, maybe instead of going all in on that edge, it, it's still worth something. I'll be paying close attention. But yeah, with crowds back, um, even something like it's not just having, you know, fourth and goal at the one and the crowd's loud. It could be uh, fourth and two at the 40. And unless you're Mike Vrabel in the playoffs, then you're probably going for it. And if you convert that fourth into, then you're probably going to extend your drive. And in that case, that can, you know, once or twice in a game, coaches going for it now in ways they didn't used to. Um, that just means more opportunities to get down to the one if you're not in goal to go already. So I think the crowd noise coming back, that could maybe suppress the edge a bit. But I think as analytics continue to take hold, I mean, I remember talking with Cleve TA, um, he did a, we did a good two-part conversation with him these past couple of weeks. He talked about consulting coaches and teams. And we would think like, hey, you and I see this kind of information all the time. We know teams tend to run too often on first down. They don't go for it enough, things like that. A lot of coaches, they're only really following their game. And they're so just consumed by what they're dealing with within their walls that they're not watching 16 games a week like we could be. And they're not picking up on some of these angles. And some of it is just a very old school train of thought that, you know, a lot of the old guard still has a lot of power in the league right now. And I think as analytics continue to take hold, more coaches, again, not punting on a fourth and two from the 40 decisions like that could mean more opportunity for one yard touchdowns. So what I'm going to be looking for is where are we seeing the crowd noise bring totals down and where are we seeing smarter decisions bring things back up? So in right. a way that might even add to the edge. Oh, I, I like, like that breakdown a lot. I'm going to give that some serious consideration and uh, appreciate you sharing. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, I've got one more question if that's okay. I, yeah. I thought we'd keep this closer to half an hour and then uh, <laughs> here we are, but um, this has been a fascinating conversation. So once again, really appreciate the time and insight, um, but to bring in the other pillar of the show, um, sure. On the hops side of things. And our last conversation, you mentioned being a seasonal beer drinker made a lot of sense. And now I'm just curious as summer heats up, have there been any particular breweries or bars or, or maybe specific beers that you've really been impressed by as we get deeper into summertime? Oh uh, man, everything I've had all summer has been really, really solid. They're just the, the explosion of just good options in your grocery store has been a, just a great revelation. Uh, there used to be one or two kind of standout small, you know, craft breweries that you could count on to make an interesting beer. And now they're all over the place. So I, I haven't uh, had anything that I would say was so outstandingly standout that you have to go run out and buy it. Um, but I give uh, Sierra Nevada a half tip. They've done a really nice job of coming up with a couple of great kind of you can find them anywhere. The Hazy IPA is excellent. They have a summer one that was really good that I had this weekend at the beach. Uh, um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's been, uh, it is, it is a very, very good time to be in the beer business. I imagine in terms of, uh, just, you know, freedom to create something interesting and different and finding an immediate uh, audience for it. What about yeah, you? Well, I, 
I love this year Nevada mentioned because again, a week after the last time we spoke, I took them for my flex spot in that California craft beer draft. I just figured between their <laughs> pale ale, celebration ale being such a good annual rite of passage, to your point, they've been getting to the hazy IPA game. And they've been one of the best large scale producers of hazy IPA. It's a style that when it first broke through, people were like, hey, this is good. But if you don't drink it in a few days, then it's not going to last as long. Sierra Nevada can make that work for about as long as anybody. So yeah, good call out. Uh, with them. I would throw out a brewery called Homage. I'm not sure if you're familiar with them. It's mm. Homage Brewing, H-O-M-A-G-E. And it's one that I already thought highly of. Again, they were also on my team in that craft beer draft. But until mid-June, their only location was in Pomona, which for those outside of Southern California who know LA, Pomona is a town bordering San Bernardino County, which extends all the way into Nevada and Arizona, if I'm not mistaken. So it's out there. But Homage opened a second tasting room in the Chinatown neighborhood of downtown LA last month. That makes them a lot more accessible and going in, even with really high expectations, was just blown away. So their bread and butter is being true to a Belgian inspiration. They crank out what I would argue are some world-class sours and you get a lot of spectacular flavor without being weighed down by heavy ABV. Typically, a lot of their best beers, they'll weigh in about 6% ABV and they serve them in eight ounce pours. So you can enjoy a couple without much, if any, side effects. And if you want to have a few more to get a nice buzz, that's certainly on the table as well. But beyond the sours, they also do good IPAs, lagers, stouts, and dark ales, even some natural wine. So there's something there for everybody, I feel. And beyond the beer itself, I I've just got to give a shout out to their vibe. They have a really sleek build out, two levels indoors, a nice patio outdoors, DJs on the weekends fun music when they don't have DJs going. So they really, I think, bring it all to the table. And the cherry on top, if you're a beer fan, would be the location. So I mentioned they're in Chinatown, a pocket of downtown LA. They're in the same block as Highland Park Brewing, which is just crushing it on all styles. They've had a great <laughs> reputation for a long time. And as you and I can attest, uh, I'm sure many others can, LA County is really spread out. But mm. with, with Homage and Highland Park now sharing the same block, I would say that two of the top three breweries in the entire county are now just footsteps from each other. So to me, that makes for a pretty ideal two-team parlay if you're looking for some pretty good beer close to downtown LA. That's cool. Homage Brewing. I'm looking at it right now. And uh, that, I have I have business at MWD from time to time, which is right there at Union Station, just, just up the way. And uh, yeah. I'll have to swing by next time. This looks very cool. Yeah, next time you get the chance, could not recommend it more highly. And uh, if you if you know you'll be swinging by and and there's a chance for any heads up, I would be happy to buy you a beer or two there. <laughs> I also know Beachwood is just an absolute powerhouse in Southern California and and down uh, in your neck of the woods. That's always a strong option as well. Oh yeah, they they uh, yeah they're they're having a, a nice rebound here from the uh, from the pandemic. So everybody's pretty pretty fired up about them still. I think they've actually expanded their footprints in a couple of places, which is pretty cool. Yeah, if I'm not mistaken, they just celebrated their 10-year anniversary. So they just had a, a pretty big release and, and some pretty cool events. So to your point, after the past year and a half, and I know that in, in LA County, um, in some senses, numbers are, are not trending in the direction that we'd all like to see. But the ability to still um, see some of these events making their way back into the fold when possible, it's just been such a sight for sore eyes. Yeah, I think that's well said. Cool. Well, Drew, we can get on out of here. I want to make sure to plug your work on Twitter at whale underscore capper. Also doing a lot with NBC Sports Edge. Two podcasts to shout out, Bet the Edge, as well as the Deep Dive. Is there anything I'm missing or anything else you'd like to add? 
No, that's good, man. Bet the Edge, uh, we're doing daily pods in every morning. They're they're brief, nice little half hour package, even shorter if you listen to it on one and a half X or two X speed. And then uh, the deep dive, we are stretching our legs two episodes a week where we are doing two teams per episode. We have one uh, out of the eight divisions in the bag. And uh, this week we will be covering uh, NFC South. Nice. All right. Well, we just got some interesting news about Tom Brady playing all last year on a torn MCL. So uh, I don't know. That guy's magic. And, and if he's healthy this year, it, it might just be more of the same for Tampa Bay dominating. So look forward to your breakdown of the NFC South right. as well as all the other divisions to come. Once again, Drew, thank you so much for taking time to reconnect here and breaking down your renowned NFL situational scheduling matrix. I'm looking forward to the NFL season already. Going to get some good info on the deep dive. Anybody listening, be sure to check that out twice a week. And yeah, I mean, your work always makes the season, I think, not just more profitable, but a lot more fun and enjoyable. So thanks so much for all you're doing and keep up the great work. All right. Thanks, guys. Best of luck. Goodbye. Thanks again to Drew for being so generous with his time and insight. It's no wonder he continues to make big moves in the betting content space. I'd also like to take a quick moment to thank the sports cheetah Preston Johnson for the opportunity to join him in studio last Friday on his new show, Last Word Cheetah, and talk some betting and beer. If you're inspired to do more NFL prep after my conversation with Drew, you can check out that episode of Last Word Cheetah via the YouTube link in the show notes. And if you enjoyed this conversation, the number one way you can support Props and Hops is to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. All right, that'll do it for this episode. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you next week. And until then, let's bet well, let's drink well, and let's be well. NBA playoffs are heating up, and thanks to Dimers.com's partnership with DraftKings, new customers who bet $1 on any basketball team can get $150 in free bets if their team wins. Here's how it works in three steps. Step one, head to dkng.co slash Dimers and create your new DraftKings Sportsbook account. Step two, make a deposit of $5 or more and a Moneyline bet of at least $1 on any NBA game for the rest of the playoffs. Step 3, if your team wins, you'll be issued a $150 bonus. So get in on the action at dkng.co slash dimers. You can find a link in the show notes. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER. That's one 800 426 2537 in Illinois. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, or Michigan. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-888-532-3500 in Virginia. Or call or text Tennessee Redline at one 800 889-9789 in Tennessee. 
21 plus, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Indiana, Iowa, Colorado, Illinois, Tennessee, Michigan, and Virginia only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit. Minimum $1 wager. One per user. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com sportsbook for details.